Yeah, this time, if you're one of the junior high or high school students, you guys were released to go to your programming and hope you have a great time over there. In the meantime, we're diving into a, a different series. But before we really dive into that, I want to encourage you guys. Some of you are here on Sundays, and right now you're at that stage in kind of what we like to think of as a congregant. You're just kind of here. You hang out. You sit. You're, some of you are brand new. You're, you're still learning about the church. But others of you, if you've been here a bit, you've been here for a while, you kind of got your bearings, we would want to encourage you to come, become part of the team here. And uh, the way to do that is, is join up and allow God to work through you. Allow him to serve through you. Coordinate yourself with us. We want to minister to you better. And really the best way to do that is, is as you join one of our ministry teams, we can care for you. One of the big needs right now is actually our children's ministry. They've, they've got all kinds of young, rambunctious kiddos. Um, that's probably not encouraging you to go, but some of you guys would enjoy that. But um, they, they're there and they're just ready to be cared for. They're ready to be mentored. They're ready to be taught. And, and trust me, you can train preschoolers all the way up to sixth graders and, and, and be in their life in a way that's powerful, that's special. And so I want to encourage you that to, to, to join up with the team, to be a part of what's going on here in our children's ministry. And uh, we've got opportunities on Sundays and Wednesdays and uh, from preschool through sixth grade. So if you're interested, if you're even curious... So let's start there. If you're even curious, and, and you can't say, well, uh, the rest of these people would be curious. Um, no, if you're personally curious, there's an insert in your program. Grab that, use that, fill that out for us so we can know that you'd be interested at all, at any level, of just aiding and caring for our kids and, um, and what goes on. Um, how many of you parents are, are, are glad your kids are in a, in a children's ministry right now? Right, so that's how many people we're serving in this service. There are plenty of other parents elsewhere. So, so please uh, take, take an opportunity to continue to bless parents and bless each other as you, uh, as you care for these kiddos. Now, we are in a series, this political season, and we're starting off this series called Unopposed. And I really want to dive into this conversation because it's interesting. We're in a situation where you're going to hear a lot of different promises from a lot of different people and a lot of different thoughts. And I just sat back and thought about this, this idea of unopposed we're in this section in the book of Romans that we're going to be looking at and, and contemplating God. And I, th- I thought, what if God ran for, for an elected office? What if he actually put his name on there? It's like Yahweh, Jesus, whatever, you know, throws his name on the ballot, has to stand up in front of crowds. And I, I'm just curious, do you think he could get elected? I don't know. I think kind of God's like almost unelectable in a sense. He's too honest. He's too straightforward. He's black and white. He's going to tell everybody where they're wrong. People aren't going to like that. They're not going to vote for him if they don't like what he says. He may seem ultra conservative. He may seem ultra liberal to others. I mean, we may say God's wishy-washy. I mean, there's so many things about God because he's a little justice-oriented. You notice that? He's kind of unbending on what he thinks is right and wrong. He's not really into the popular opinion that much. He's kind of like, you know, my way is the highway. And that's kind of how it works. We kind of look at him. Who made you God? And he's like, I, I am God. So if he ran, I don't personally think he, we would necessarily elect him, vote him into office. Thankfully, God's not running. He's unopposed as God. That's one of the weird things for us as Americans. We elect our leaders. We elect those we put over us and in charge of us. But God's not electable. He's, he's not there. He's unopposed. He runs all by himself. Uh, and he's actually, he's not running at all. He's just God. There's nobody else that could make that claim. And so what's interesting about this is that that could get really frustrating for us as human beings. Um, it kind of it just gives us the wrong impression. 
And, and that's really what we got to wrestle with in this Romans 9, 10, and 11 section uh, of the Bible because God is going to be put up there as the unopposed God. He's sovereign over everything, in charge. And we kind of go, but that, God, that, that, that's, I'm struggling with this. How, how do I trust you? What, what do you like? Especially considering it appears that you may be unfaithful. And that's a dangerous point. You know, it used to be, if you were a politician, your word was your bond. You had to be a faithful person. I don't know if this is necessarily true. Politics has always been a part, a, a part deception, a part of getting manipulation. But, you know, I understood it as, a, in a, as an idealist. And politics ought to be about a man who says, or a woman who says they're going to do this, and they do it. And so we can trust them. If we can't trust them, how do we even know what they say is going to be true or not? And yet the same thing is, is, is found with God. In fact, Paul, as we get into this text, is going to wrestle with this very question. And it's a question that should concern us deeply. And it's a question that should really bother us as Christians. Because if God is not faithful, if God is not going to hold to his word, you have no trust that you're going to be saved. And that's really where, what Paul's going to get to. Let's look at this. Open your Bibles if you got them. To Romans chapter 9. We're going to begin in page 945 in the Bibles in your seats just to catch all you guys up. The book of Romans is written by a man named Paul. He was a missionary. He sent out, his, he sent out this letter to, these, um, to the people in Rome. Now, Rome is a giant city, capital city of the Roman Empire. Large Jewish enclaves. Tons of Christians live in this town, in this city. And he's writing this letter to say, hey, this is my gospel. Endorse me because I'm on my way to Spain. I hope that you guys would support me. As he's writing this out, he's already in the first four chapters kind of declared, everybody on earth is pretty messed up, regardless if you're Jew or Gentile. We're all condemned, and we're going to fail when we stand before the judgment. Unless we've trusted Jesus Christ, and the trust of Jesus Christ is by trust, faith only. And so we need to lean on him and trust his promise that Jesus has borne our sins on the cross, that he's taken care of the wrath of God. And so in 5, 6, 7, and 8, he says, so that we're all at peace with God. Not so we run back and to do whatever we want. We just don't go sinning because, hey, God's forgiven me. But we also don't lock ourselves down in a bunch of laws. We have a relationship with God. And what happens in that relationship then is that God uses everything, everything, good, bad, ugly, beautiful, everything in the life of the believer. He uses it all to be to the good and to form us into our, like our, to be like our hero, Jesus Christ. That's the first, and then that's the beauty of these first eight chapters all wrapped up, that, that we are saved. God is making us into our hero. We have a destiny beyond this in, in heaven, and it's all through a gift that we trust and receive. And then Paul says, hold on a second. We got a problem, though, because this sounds awfully familiar. Notice how he puts it beginning in chapter 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Whoa, Paul, what are you talking about here? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He says, guys, I got a problem. So it's all really familiar because I preached this gospel and my, bre my brethren in the flesh, the Israelites, the Jewish community, is not receiving this. Have you ever lost someone as a Christian and realized the anguish that it is. It takes me back 
to the funeral of my grandfather. I was just, a, I'd just become a Christian a, a couple years earlier, and I didn't know where my grandfather was in his faith or what he believed or how he acted. I knew his history, and so I was concerned. So when he had died, I literally had a breakdown right in front of his coffin at the funeral because I just couldn't handle the fact that my grandfather might enter, might have no response to the judgment of God and enter into an eternity of punishment for his sins. And I'm sitting there, it just was burdening me so greatly, made me realize I've got nephews and, and, and sisters. And in fact, I, I took a tour with, with Kevin, our outreach director this week, and driving all over Corona. There are there are thousands and thousands of people just driving around in this town who have no clue what they're going to face after they die before God and have no answer for how they're going to respond to that. And I don't know about you, but that should burden us. Notice what Paul gets to. Paul even says, I wish I was accursed. I wish I was sent to hell for the sake of them. Now, I don't know. I don't, anybody at that level with me at that point? I mean, like, I'm kind of like, eh, good job, Paul. But how Christ-like is that? Christ took hell for us. And Paul is so much ingrained with the gospel that he's ready to take hell for those that he loves that are his brothers and sisters in the flesh, Jewish. And it's just, it's, it's amazing because I need to note this because we're gonna dive into some really heady and tumultuous stuff. Romans 9 and 10 and 11 have been the, uh, the seedbed for debates and divisions in the church all over the place. In fact, many people will read chapter nine and say, well, that just eliminates evangelism, blah, blah, blah. And I think they get it wrong because what you're seeing is the headwaters of these chapters is the heart of evangelism. A man who is so enwrapped, so desirous to see people come to Christ that he is literally willing to give up his salvation if that was a possibility so that they could know it. That is evangelism and the heart of an evangelist at the max. Amen? Guys, that's the beginning of this text. And we need to see that. But the question that's left in the air is, why in the world aren't they receiving it? I mean, look at this. If you're new to the Bible, some of these words don't make any sense, but I'll try and bring them out a little bit. The Israelites are God's people. They were a nation that God chose out of all the nations and said, this is where my blessing is going to remain. I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. They're going to be a priest to all the nations. They're, they're going to do this. And he has all this information. So the Israelites, he said, belong to them. The adoption, meaning they were going to be God's people. The glory, meaning that he appeared and showed up to them. The covenants, he made special promises and covenants with these people. He gave them the law. He taught them how to worship in their temple appropriately, the God of himself, the God of the universe. And he gave them all kinds of promises, like they would inherit the world. They would be the capital of the world. It goes on to be, they have the patriarchs, which are these guys, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all these men that we read about in, in the first five books of the Bible. The, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. God blessed this people so much, he decided when I come to earth, I'm going to be one of them. I'm going to be Jewish. This is how blessed these people are. They received all of this stuff, and yet, Paul's looking around, and most of them aren't receiving the Messiah, aren't receiving the salvation. And the question floats in the air. After God's promised all this stuff to Israel, all these things to these people, and they're not being saved, has God failed in his faithfulness? Is God going to be unfaithful to us? I mean, is there some sort of sin, some sort of set of things that you can do wrong, some sort of bad ways that you can live that God's going to literally crumple you up and throw you aside and say, I'm done with you. My promises are over. 
Is that how God deals with the people that he's given promises to? Because if that's true, we're going to lock ourselves into a bunch of rules and run and run and run and run and run and run. And I got to do my quiet time and I got to be in prayer and I got to be at church and I got to make sure I'm worshiping and I got to raise my hands because I'm told to. There's all these rules that will suddenly apply and will be, and cons- will be concerning whether or not you're going to stay saved. Guys, that's a scary world to live in. And that's not the scriptural world that you read in the Bible. But that's what happens if we don't think God is faithful. So how do we deal with this? What do we say about these things? Well, Romans 9 takes off, and it begins with this. that God won't give up on us because he wanted us. That's where we need to start. God won't give up on us because he wanted us. And this is how it works. Let's start here. This is tough stuff, so we're going to work through it together. He starts off, you, however, or sorry, that's chapter 8. My page flipped. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as though his promises have have, have failed. This really wants to be chapter 8. All right. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, let's just simplify this real quick. We get this statement. We really do. We all understand that everybody who puts the name Christian on themselves are a Christian. Amen? Is that right? Yeah? Yeah. There are lots of people who think they're Christians because, hey, I believe in God. I was born a Catholic. I was born a Protestant. I was born a Baptist. I was born Armenian. Therefore, I am a Christian. Or I was born in the USA. Of course, I'm a Christian. This is the large assumption many people make that all I have to do is believe God exists and I'm a Christian. That is not what the Christian faith holds. There's a lot more to that. And then we really need to understand that not everybody who throws the label Christian on themselves are Christians. In fact, it doesn't even matter what, that you're, what lineage you're of. I mean, you could be the apostles' great, 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 great grandkids and it gives you no better standing than anybody else on the planet. Billy Graham's own kids have to stand before God on their own. They don't get Billy Graham's like covering, making sure that they're okay. And so this is the reality that he's saying. Not all the people who are descended of Israel, the person, this person Jacob, belongs to Israel, this group of promised people. And he gives some illustrations of how this works out. And this is important for us because this can help clear some things up. Maybe some of us are at church because you think you need to be. This is SoCal, so it's not really usually that way. If I was in Texas, I might have to make that point a little stronger. But some of us are here because you think this is good things to do. You want your children to learn faithful things. Guess what, guys? That's not how this works. And really, nobody comes to church for the right reasons. I get that. We, we all come to church for, for various different reasons. But what we really need to do is understand that what God has led us to here is he's saying, look, there is a group of people that are the Christians. Not everybody gets to slap the label on them. In the Israel's case, he says this, this means that it is not the children of, the, of offspring, or sorry, of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. Now, some of us don't know this story, so I'll fast forward you through it. There was a man named Abraham. Abraham, in chapter 12 of Genesis, is given a promise by God that he's going to be a blessing to the world and he's going to have a son. Now, he, him and his wife, Sarah, are barren. They cannot have children. They're really, really old. And so they're looking at this situation. She's beyond childbearing years. Years. And so they're looking at this going, we're not going to have kids, but God promised us a kid. So Sarah looks at her culture and says, hey, this is normal. Surrogate, surrogate child bearers are normal reality. So she picks out her handmaiden from Egypt named Hagar and says, here, Abraham, have her and she can have the, our kid. 
And so Abraham sleeps with her. They have a child named Ishmael, and a whole bunch of problems occur out of that. But Ishmael, is, to Abraham, is the answer to the promise. And God shows up and says, no, 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 Sarah is going to have the child. Ishmael is not the child of the promise. And so Sarah does give birth later, miraculously, to a son named Isaac. And God says, all these blessings of your children, not Ishmael, yes, Isaac. This is the child of promise. This is the lineage that we're going with. And then it moves forward and gives a second illustration. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done any, nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, and Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is another story. Isaac has, a, has children, twins, in the womb. They're wrestling and fighting. And Rebekah is told the, old, the younger is going to, or the older will serve the younger. In other words, the, old, the, the younger is going to be the blessed one. Well, Jacob and Esau are two really interesting guys. It's not because they were good kids or anything else like that. Jacob was an awful kid. He was a cheater. That's what his name meant cheater. And he cheated ev- people out of everything that he could get. And Esau was just a big, hairy, red jerk. And that's pretty much how you can sum that up. So these, this kind of what these, these, both these boys are not good boys. And yet God says, Jacob's the lion. And all Paul is doing is he's trying to argue very clearly, not everybody who is an offspring physically is part of the blessing. In other words, just because you're born in the group doesn't mean you are in the group. And it's the promise that lasts. That's, what, that's what's going on here. Notice the most frustrating verse. This is the most frustrating verse for all of us if we really look at it. And if you're theologically minded, this is one of those you're like, you're going to get kind of wiggly in your chair. So it starts here. For this is the, what the promise said. About this time next year I'll return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived, the children by one man, our forefather Isaac, here it is, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not being of works, but because of him who calls, she was told this. The trouble there is the word election. You know, God's not running for anything. We don't get to elect God, but he elects us. Which is an odd thought. I'm not going to get into the philosophy of how this works. There's no point in doing that. There's a lot of theories out there, but my point right now is that clearly it says that God makes this choice, that he wanted certain people to be with him, that he chose them. And the first reaction that some of us are having right now is going, no, he didn't. I chose God. I remember the day. I raised my hand. I filled out a card. I walked down an aisle. I was, I was on Angel State Field, Angel Stadium Field, and you know, God was, I heard the gospel. I came forward. This is, I have a, I have a choice here. Can I just say right now, that's true. You, didn't we make a choice? Say yes if you did. Yes. There's a few of you that didn't. Some of you guys were born, and, you, and, and you're like Ruth Graham, who put it this way. I don't know when the sun came up, but it's always been shining. She just grew up in the faith. And somewhere along the line, however, she reckoned that her sinfulness was big enough that she needed Jesus Christ and that he was worthy to follow. There's a choice that's being made from our human perspective. We make a choice. I think it's folly to deny that we make a choice from our human perspective. But is this book talking about our human perspective at this point? No. It's not referencing human perspective at all. 
In fact, what it's referencing is God's perspective. And God's sitting there going, it's great, you had a choice. By, by the way, by the way, I did too. I had a choice. I got to choose. Now, how does that work out? God makes a choice. I make a choice. Both of these apparently are the truth. And I believe they work together. I actually think we both make choices. Now, how you work that out is a matter of debate and theology. We don't need to worry about that. All we need to acknowledge is that God makes a choice, and we've made a choice. And I believe somehow that when God said, I want you, I love you, you're mine, he doesn't give up on the people that he chooses. If you're part of the promise, he's not going to fail for you. He didn't fail for the Israel that were of the promise. He didn't give up on them. They actually received the blessings that he promises, just like those of us who have received the blessing of the promise of Jesus Christ, he will not fail with. He's not going to back off on you. Why would he choose you to just go, nah, never mind? God chose your life, the whole of you. He picked you out. He loved you. He's using everything to point you and make you like your hero, Jesus. So why would he just suddenly go, nah, never mind, I don't give up on that one. No. And so for some of us in this room, that's going to give you some, a sense of, oh, wow, security. I don't have to work at this. I don't have to, I don't have to run and race and do this and do that and do this and do that. Now note, it does not allow you to go sin. I want to be very clear. Some people have taken these verses to think, well, because I'm chosen, I can do whatever I want. God's not going to give up on me. It's probably likely showing that you weren't chosen. This is not a license to sin. This is not an excuse for arrogance or bullheadedness in our sinfulness. Well, God's going to, God chose me, so I get it. No, 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 no. It actually is, becomes a, a, an honor. I mean, how would you... Feel, if you knew God pulled you out and said, I want you, you're on the team. You're on God's team. You're going like, I want to play as the best I can. I'm not going to run off and go do dumb things. I want to walk with God as closely as I can. He wants a relationship with me, and I chose to have a relationship with him. I'm going to honor the choice. He's going to honor his choice, and bam, you have a lock in a relationship. That's the beauty of this. You say you can be secure. God's not just going to go like, I'm done with you. You, you, you said a cuss word before you died. You're gone. Some of us really worry about this stuff. Some of us really wonder, what is it that I can do that's going to make me fail? The answer is, don't worry about that. Live in your relationship because God has loved you. He's not going to give up on you. He's wanted you. Others of us in this room are a little bit more, more like me, kind of theologically minded. We go, wait a minute. Hold on a second. That just doesn't seem fair. I mean, God's picking winners and losers. This doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel right. I get, I get I got a choice. I get God's got a choice. But, you know, this, 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 what, this feels unjust. This feels like God is just playing games here. And that's exactly where Paul goes. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God being unjust here by letting some people go and, some, and keeping some other? He says, by no means. No, 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 no. God is not being unjust. I and mean, we're, we're kind of people of fairness, though, aren't we, as human beings? My, my son, uh, Nathaniel, and my son, Jonathan, are both in that, like, six to ten-year-old age. And it's around that time that all they want to do is that everything's not fair. You know, uh, we watched a movie. Well, it's not fair. I didn't watch a movie. Well, you can go watch that movie. But I didn't get to watch that movie. We had ice cream. Well, I didn't get his ice cream. It's like, I didn't get to read that. I didn't get to do that. And there are different ages, and you're trying to explain things. And finally, what do us parents, we all say, look, life's not fair. Anybody else there with me? You're like, I never say that. Life's always fair. No, it's not. Life's not fair. It's just not fair. And when I quote fair, I mean, 
God is not being unrighteous, unjust, when he's being unfair. Because mercy is unfair. Notice how Paul answers the argument. It's kind of weird. He goes like this. Hey, what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Thanks, Paul. That, that sure means a lot. <laughs> Anybody else sit back and just go, what? Why are you quoting verses at me? Come on. Uh, help me out here. But notice the verse he quotes. It's very particular. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And he keep focuses in on that mercy. What's interesting about the word mercy is mercy takes you into a courtroom setting where a judge sits on a throne and a man who is accused and guilty stands before him and he gives him mercy. He says, I'm not going to judge you. I give you mercy. You can go. Unless there is justice, there is no mercy. The problem is we all want mercy. We think mercy is deserved by everybody. But we think everybody should get justice. We should get what we deserve. We should get it. We should get it. We should get it. Everybody should get exactly what they deserve. And we all think we deserve mercy. That if God gives mercy to some people, well, everybody gets mercy then. You can't just give some people mercy. No, no, that's not how mercy works. Mercy is never deserved. Mercy is never earned. Mercy is given by a judge who has compassion and gives mercy. And it's important to note, is I think what we're all freaked out about in this text is the idea that there are going to be people in this world that beg God for mercy, and he goes, nah, I don't want to give you mercy. I don't think that's how God works, from what I read in the text. The word mercy literally denotes somebody who knows they need mercy. Think about it for a second. The only way you know you need mercy from the living God is you know that you're condemned to hell and you deserve it. There's a big difference when you catch your children doing something wrong and they feel guilty because they got caught. And they're, give me mercy, give me mercy, but they don't understand what they did was wrong. Versus a child who knows what he's done is wrong, understands that they deserve it. When my daughter comes up to me and says, I know I did this wrong and I know I should deserve a punishment, I go, well, I'm gonna give you mercy. You can go ahead. I see you already learned your lesson. See, what I think is we think there are going to be thousands and thousands and thousands and millions of human beings standing before God going, give me mercy! And he goes, no. But this is the demarcation of who is in the promise, of who is a Christian. I love this. It was given to me by my friend Tim, who told it at our small group. And he says, you know, as a missionary who, who starts every conversation with this when he meets a Christian, they go, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, when did you know that you were a sinner destined for hell? Until you can tell me the day that you understood that you were a sinner destined for hell, that you knew your life was so corrupt and messed up that God had the right to send you to hell and you'd be good to do so, you don't know what mercy is. Because that's the problem. Until we realize God has the right to send me to hell for the things that I've done, for the evil I've committed, for the heart condition I'm in, I'm not going to cry out for mercy, real mercy. It's when I see that and I realize my destiny, I go, God, have mercy on me. He says, yes, I can. Take my son who on the cross and I'll put that judgment on him. And I go, anything, because I don't want this. I don't want to live there. I want to live with you. Have mercy on me. And he goes, yes. 
Who in their right mind, when they see that they're destined for hell, they're against the God of the Bible who is right and ownership over all things, made us in his image, and we go, God, I'm condemned. Help me. He says, absolutely, I'll help you. I believe it every time. He grants mercy. He has mercy upon whom he has mercy. We can debate when mercy starts and where it comes from, all this stuff. But there's a couple of things about this. He goes into Pharaoh, and he starts talking about Pharaoh, because Pharaoh is an interesting character in the scriptures. You can go back and read it in Exodus. It's, he's talked about a lot. And this is the Pharaoh of Exodus that he's quoting. And Pharaoh just won't let the people go. He keeps, keeps hardening his heart. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God even uses the hardened to proclaim himself, is what Paul's saying. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, we skipped one verse, and I'll get back to it in a second, but I want to point this out. That mercy, then, is, again, in contrast to hardening. In the ancient world, I don't know of any other way of hardening something than letting it be. When you heated up metal and you banged it down, the way you hardened it was you dipped it in water and you let it sit and cool, and it hardens. When you take clay, and I believe he had clay in his mind because he goes on to talk about clay pots, you take clay and you put it in the sun and it hardens. You see, when you have mercy, you give them something. When you make someone stubborn, you leave them alone, and they stay stubborn. When they harden their hearts, you leave them alone, and they harden. They just harden. They stay in their state. I believe that's what is going on here. And so Paul is making this conclusion earlier in verse 16. He says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I think we can amen this. Because we all know it's not about who runs and works hard to receive Jesus Christ, right? It's not what you do. It's not you earn salvation. It's not that you do all these good things and God goes, hey, your life's worth it. Here you go. No, 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 it's not about running or earning. You can't earn mercy. The second you try to earn mercy, it ceases to be something that he gives as a gift. It becomes something deserved. But all we deserve is justice. Mercy is a beautiful gift. And for some of us, it's going to overwhelm you. For some of us, it's a positive thing. For some of us, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, God loves me that much. Yeah, once he's given you mercy, he's not going to then turn around and go, never mind, I'm giving you judgment. No, he wants a relationship with you. And so while we chose, he chose you. And he says, yes, and I give you mercy. And so now you have this mercy. He's not going to turn around and say, no, I'm going to judge you. No, he cares. He's not going to turn against his people. He's given you mercy. Again, that is not a license to go sin. God's given me mercy. I can do whatever I want. No, no, no. It turns you into somebody who's willing to do whatever you can for the king who's given you mercy. Only the rebel receives mercy and turns around and turns back to his rebellion. There's those of us who have received mercy that suddenly our eyes are open and we go, God, you are so good, you're so awesome, you're so caring, I want to worship you. Now, there's a tension in all this. And that tension is formed in all kinds of directions and weird stuff in the church. But for some of us, this is going to be a sense of peace because God is just and good but he's approachable. You see, if he's only just and if he's only just and good and great, go be a Muslim. And you will learn you do not approach Allah. You don't approach him. He is powerful and he is just and he is right to throw everybody into hell. And that's pretty much what he'll do unless you work a really good life out. The God of the Bible. He's not that way. 
He's right, he's good, he's just, but he's merciful. And in his mercy, he's approachable. As we realize I'm condemned, we cry for mercy and he gives it in Jesus Christ. And that's the beauty of this thing that's going on in here. That we can, we can trust that when we go out and tell people about the gospel, we don't have to worry about making them become Christians. You can't make anybody believe anything, guys. That's coercion. That's not what we do as a church. It's not what we do as a people of God. We don't coerce people into the faith. We tell them about the gospel. We remove objections as best as we can, and then they receive it or they don't. They see their need or they don't see their need. And we try as hard as we can for them to see the need so that they will receive and ask and beg for mercy. And I believe God's ready to give it to them. And that's, that's the beauty of what we have connected here. And so I hope it challenges some of us to get out there and preach the gospel, not to stay in here and just theologize, feel, just have these theological conversations kind of things. Because God is going to save people. God is go- it's going to be received by people. It's not our job to speculate who these people are. But there's still a tension. Some of us are like, oh, that's great. Okay, so God, yeah, I picked, he picks, I get that. And then, oh, he has mercy, and he's only gonna, he really has mercy when we need mercy. Okay, but God has mercy, I, I get that. But it just seems like a rigged game. I mean, come on. Who can withstand his will? If he wants you to be one thing, then you're going to be that. You know, because he says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Who's going to resist his will then? And that's the tension. But what this tension should lead us to is seeing that God elected and gave mercy should lead us to humility and to wonder, not to dogmatism and division. And what I've seen in the church is on this particular issue, Satan has had a field day dividing the church against itself. Having a blast happened in my youth group, split in half over Arminianism, Calvinism, two theological ideas that contain this, these arguments. And what's crazy about all of this stuff is that what I think Paul is doing here is very interesting. He goes into this this way. You will say to me then, who does he still find fault? Why does he still find fault, sorry? For who can resist his will? So he's asking the question that we're asking. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? That seems like a harsh response. Anybody feel like it's a harsh response? Sort of like, well, who are you to talk back to God? I'm not answering the question. I'm just going to yell at you. You know, that's kind of how it feels if you read it the wrong way. But really what I think he's doing, he's saying, guys, hold on a second. Who are you, oh man? A speck on a piece of dust floating through a solar system in the midst of a, in the midst of a galaxy that's mi- millions and millions of light years wide in a universe that's gargantuan. And God made all that with his words. What I think Paul is saying is watch it when you enter into this, that you approach with humility. Because who are you, oh man, to tell God what to do? I think what happens in this is we get to this level, we get down to this point where we see, yeah, this choosing and God's give mercy to some. We're like, this doesn't seem fair still. You know what? I'm sick of this. Can I run for God? He's unopposed. He's not running but we sure want to in a lot of these theological issues. We go, make me God. I'm, I'm God. I got it all figured out. I'll write it out in a nice systematic theology for you and I'll put it on a desk and there you go. And if you don't believe that, you can't come to my church. And really, that's where a lot of churches got to. And I think what Paul's going is, hey guys, remember who you are. 
You're human beings. Yes, you're made in the image of God. You're glorious. You're powerful. You're all these things, but you're not God, who is very glorious, who is very powerful, who is immense and supreme and huge. Just remember that you're a man. And I think that drives us to humility. You see, the danger why we do this is because when I'm told that when you only give God's perspective and God chose me, and I only give God's perspective and he had mercy on me, I start to wiggle. But I want a choice, and I want some freedom, and I, 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 and you know what's dying inside of me? My pride. The gospel is an acid that eats pride away. And what Paul was intending to do is he's saying, guys, look, Israel thinks it's all that in a bag of chips. There's only a few of them that were, that were actually the people of the promise, and it's there to erode the, the acid, of, it's there to erode away pride. So let's not get to the point where we think we've got this all figured out. Who are you, oh man? When you look at these things, we should come with humility and trepidation. Now, I believe that means that we shouldn't divide the church over these issues. You may have a different viewpoint than somebody else in the room. But that doesn't mean we should chop the church in half. I'm talking, some of you guys are younger Christians. You don't know this debate. Don't worry about it. But some of you do know the debate. And you guys are all going to encounter it eventually if you stay in Christianity long enough. The point is here at Olive Branch, we're not going to divide over that. We're going to think biblically about it. We're going to dialogue biblically about it. But we're not going to chop ourselves in half. If you're in the Arminian camp, I hope that you would love your brothers in the Reformed camp. If you're in the Reformed camp, I hope that you'd love your brothers in the Arminian camp. And I hope what we would have is a powerful dialogue because there's two problems. One is to be so arrogant that we split ourselves and therefore declare we know what God did. And I don't think even Paul's going to do that in a second, you'll see. Or we become so aloof we don't care about the conversation. Note that is not what Paul wants us to do either. Paul didn't say, who cares? Let's just go do the gospel. No, he said, let's honorably think about this because you know what this does? If we ignore this conversation, our worship shrinks because we'll lose the wonder of who God is, how big he is, how other he is, how powerful he is, how sovereign he is. And it takes your worship and you go, yeah, God's not important to talk about. But it's important enough to give your Sundays to. No, no, no. The conversation is given to us by God to drive us deeper, to make us ponder and sit back and go, I am so small, God. You are so huge. I don't get this. The danger is to land in pride or apathy. But we are to be in the middle where we're conversing as brothers and sisters and the wonder of the grandeur of what God has made is reality. And so when we enter into this, notice what he does. He says, well, but you, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? What, will the, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable and another vessel for dishonorable? There's the tension. Isn't God allowed to do this if he wants? And the answer is pretty much, yeah, I don't really want to tell God no. I mean, that's Paul's argument. And then notice what he does. Once he's laid down the problem, that we don't know why God has done it this way. We don't stand up and say, I figured it out. He goes, what if? Look at that. Read it with me. Say it. Verse 22. What if? That's important to note. I have not found a commentary that's commentated on what if, but those are the words of speculation. Not dogmatism. What if God Desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels prepared for destruction. 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand. His argument is this. He says, guys, guys, I'm not going to be dogmatic here. What if? Yes, God has the right to do this. What if God did this? Because we who have received mercy would have no clue what it is if there was no justice and power and patience on God's behalf with those who are condemned. And how do we know what mercy and grace looks like if we don't know what justice looks like? They live on top. You have to know justice before you can understand mercy. How do we understand God's goodness if he never upholds anything that he said and gives mercy to everybody? These are the tensions that many theologians have worked out and talked through in all kinds of ways. And Paul just kind of says, what if it's that? What if, God, what if God's just trying to show himself off in a way so that those who've been given mercy might wonder and worship? And that's what I think he's saying. He's saying, is God going to fail in his word? No, 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 no. He's so faithful because he loves the people that he's picked out. He's given them mercy. And and that should lead the people to wonder and be amazed, not to speculate and get angry and let our pride die. And let's just, there's there's mystery all through this text. And even more mysterious is that when God made this choice, he didn't narrow the field down, he expanded it. In the past, it was Israel. These are the chosen people of God. No, now he says, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it bigger. I'm going to take people from all the nations and all the people and I'm going to make them mine. Notice how it goes on. For the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he said in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, There they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like the Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And I believe the promise here is that none of our peoples will end up like Sodom and Gomorrah, that he will find a people out of all of them. That God actually expanded it to the Gentiles. Now, guys, the word Gentile doesn't mean a whole lot to us. But in the ancient world, it, what it's saying is Israel was the righteous, good people who did good things. They were, the, in, our, in our mind, the church. And God said, you know what? I'm not just going to focus on I want this message to go to everybody. All the nasty, child-murdering, Molech-worshipping, idolatrous, bent witchcraft, sexual deviant people called the Gentiles, which by the way are, if you're not Jewish, are all of our ancestors and us. And God said, I'm going to expand the people of God to what I call the church. And it's going to be of all the peoples of the world, which is why we at Olive Branch seek to unleash the gospel to the unreached of this globe and not limited just to the church, just to America. Yes, we're going to reach here. We're going to let the gospel saturate this area and then go beyond all the way to those who have never heard the gospel before. As we'll find out in chapter 10, that's exactly what this concludes to. This doesn't limit evangelism. It blows it wide open. So next week, we're going to dive into that conversation. But this week, I want you to be confident that the unopposed God 
who is sovereign over the universe, has given you mercy through Jesus Christ on the cross to bear your sins, risen from the dead, that he would have, you would have life and a resurrection, giving you great promises, and because he picked you out to love you, he will never go back on it. And right now, you may be going, I want that, God. Go ahead. Ask him to come into your life. Because he gives mercy. And God is great. And he will not go back on you. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we, we, we've, uh, we've played in the shallow end of very deep waters this morning. Um, your immensity is something we will ponder for eternity. These questions will probably sit at your feet and ask you to help us, and you'll probably tell us to go to school for a few more eons before we're ready for the answers. But God, instead, may that just lead us to wonder at you, the goodness of you, the grandeur of you, your mercy, your mercy, your justice, your grace, everything about you. And may it lead us to be humble and worshipers. And God, I pray that all branch would be a place of unity where we connect into these conversations. We don't divide and get angry where we exalt in who you are. And we thank you that you've allowed us to know you. And God, we do. We love you. And from our perspectives this morning, we say, we want to be yours. And we thank you that you, from your perspective, you said, you want us to be yours. What a mystery. Thank you for not giving up on us. And we lay ourselves at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen.